Well, so the situation in Ephesus, ancient Ephesus, was quite similar to the situation in Leviticus, where an encroaching world, a world encroaching upon the, the, the morality and the spirituality of the church as a minority culture. And of course, all of this sounds precariously similar to what is in the process of happening right now in Western civilization, particularly in America. I mean, think about it. This is the exact same thing. Having enjoyed for some period of time of kind of hegemony, cultural hegemony or, or, or populism in, in the country, we are now increasingly in a minority, a very small minority and growing of people surrounded by, if you will, a culture that has lost any sense of of God's law. Today, Paul is addressing that to the Ephesians. A very similar situation, a very similar church, a church that has prospered, a city that has prospered, probably one of the most significant cities of ancient Rome. And yet, we know that within that city, there was the same trends that we see today. Self-appointed pastors and elders who are wandering from the orthodoxy of apostolic faith. These pastors have a confidence about them, an assertiveness, and yet coupled with a kind of casualness about Scripture. A kind of, if I see this in the Word of God, then it must be the Word of God kind of spirituality that was undermined, underpinned by this idea, this false idea of, of, of revelation coming from the Holy Spirit and prophesying. Gosh, does this not sound familiar? Particularly as it's becoming more and more common, but more and more the norm. There was a growing, therefore, misunderstanding of the role of the Holy Spirit such as to rely on one's own subjective experiences and opinions as if revelatory. I quote now from Timothy. He says this about the context of ancient Ephesus. Certain persons, by quote, serving from these, have wandered away from into vain, that is useless, that is from an orthodox point of view, beside the point kind of discussions. For they desire to be teachers of the law, but they don't understand what they're talking about or what they are saying, about which they make otherwise confident assertions, end quote. I mean, just listen to what's going on. And the, and, and it's almost ancient stuff to think of regulating the church and regulating the pastor and his preaching as to be strictly according to the word of God. Well, as a result of all this, there was a growing crisis in not only what they were taught, but what they lived. Timothy will be exhorted to be different than all these others around him when he goes to Ephesus, but rather to watch himself, his morality, and his teaching, his orthodoxy. And of course, as a result, there was this growing crisis then in moral clarity. Now, do I really need to make a point about that today? Are we confused? I mean, as I watch what's happening in our cities and in our 
in our government and all the sources of what's going on. You know, I'm, I'm not going to bore you with that. I mean, if you wake up in the 21st century living in America, you know what I'm talking about. Whether it's on campuses, whether it's in our politics, whether it's in even churches. And so what does he do? He goes back to the Ten Commandments. Now, in Ephesus, we know that this is his concern and that he spent literally four, two chapters, full two chapters, expressing and re, rediscovering what it meant, especially the last five of the Ten Commandments. He wants to re-envision for his congregation a healthy understanding of authority, taking honor thy father and mother, which, as we know in the Scripture now, if you were here, is... Is, is a representation of all authority that proceeds from it in that ancient cultural way of civilization growth. I mean, if you can't honor your father or mother, who will you honor? A healthy understanding of the sacredness of life, given, of course, and thou shalt not kill unlawfully, and all that would come with the sacredness of life and how we would treat each other, by the way. Again, not just the one-liner. It goes all into it in places like Leviticus and Deuteronomy. A healthy understanding of sexuality. Thou shalt not commit adultery. But of course, that's really about a healthy understanding of marriage. As we'll see throughout the scripture as it addresses this seventh commandment. A healthy understanding of work. Boy, do we need that? Of course, he gets at that through the heading, thou shalt not steal, but you'll see the way Paul will acknowledge it. It's all about your understanding of work and why you work. People who are to work with their own hands, to strive to be self-sufficient, but even more so that they might give to those who are in need, recognizing in God's providence, he ordered it in such a way that some would be given too much so that in the economy of community building, those who have too much would give those who don't have enough, at least in financial terms, And it all equals out. Oh, have we lost that in our individualistic focused laissez-faire capitalism? And this isn't against capitalism per se. I said laissez-faire individualist capitalism. Or a healthy understanding of ambition. I mean, this is ridiculous how relevant this is. I hope you see that. What is ambition? What is proper ambition? We'll be getting to that. Thou shalt not covet. So we know from Paul that he unpacks all of this in Ephesians, and now as he's exhorting Timothy to go to Ephesians, he's saying, and remember, Ephesians was with Paul in writing that letter to Ephesians. He's basically calling him to remember all that has already been given to Ephesus by way of apostolic sort of canon, and now he's saying, you need to go over there and get this stuff executed. You need to go in there and clean this thing up. It's a pretty big task. And so now we're in that book. And particularly now we are at the point where we're going to talk about, of course, sexuality. That is to say, what does it mean? And remember that the moral laws I've been including uh, in terms of the Ten Commandments, well, they include attitudes, speech, overt behavior, which all encourage a particular sin. Laws which are negative, would forbid, that is forbidding something, are implicitly meant to be interpreted as to also include the positives that you should do as related to those things. And so today we talk about a healthy understanding of sexuality and the healthy practices that relate to it. 
And of course, I don't need to remind you, we are in a state of confusion. And what I'm hearing is that that confusion is permeating the life of the church like never I could have imagined. So pray with me, please. Let's pray for God's clarity. If we believe in him and want his flourishing presence in our life, this is what we're all about here. Let's pray. So, Father, we thank you. You have not left us destitute. Oh, praise you for that, Father. We are not left without a sacred canon, an authorized representation of your mind, the beauty of your mind, the same mind that that created heaven and earth as the mind that envisioned a a socialization that, that was meant to be heaven on earth. God, please send your Holy Spirit into our minds and hearts. Give us an openness to trust you, that what is beautiful in your mind is beautiful for life. These aren't arbitrary rules or doctrines. We know, Lord, forgive us. When we've treated them things as we must resist in order to live life more fully. Forgive us when we have, well, like in Leviticus and like in Ephesus, we have so casually taken that which is a plausible value is what everybody else around us believes. We know, Lord, that you're called us to be resident aliens. Alien in so many ways while we live on this earth. Most especially alien in the way we socialize together. And thus your second half of the Decalogue. Lord, come to us now about sexuality. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I'm not going to mince any words. I hope you appreciate that. And uh, we're going to start with the moral clarity. And there's two key words in the passage that Timothy mentions. The first word is one you may have heard if you've been around the church, pornea. Translated in the ESV, what you've heard was sexual immorality. Now, of course, uh, this is not a prohibition against sex. Quite the contrary. But it's a prohibition against that which destroys the intent of sex. That is unlawful sex, um, that which does not lead to flourishing in the way that God envisioned the institution of sex to produce in our society, but but one that would lead to decay and all kinds of horrible ramifications. I mean, first we'd have to start to understand this word. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 6.18. He says, quote, flee from sexual immorality, that is the word pornea, And then he explains a little bit more. For every other sin in a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral, pornea person sins against his own body. Now this is huge. Stop and listen to what you just heard. You cannot touch a person's skin without touching a person's spirit. We are not... We don't dislocate the natures. That's an ancient and pagan idea. It's unorthodox. We don't believe that resurrection is just a, a spiritual resurrection, for instance. That was contrary to everything in the Old and New Testament about the nature of humanity, that we are both body and spirit. 
And so the point is that pornea is a sin against one's own body, and to sin against one's own body is to sin against one's own spirit. The close relationship, then, of this biblical anthropology drives everything here. It's just not a casual thing. And that doesn't get to the issue of motivations. You can have the most beautiful and, and wonderful motivations. And maybe you'd say, well, as long as you love somebody, then, then it's, it's a good thing. Well, it's a good argument. But we'll have to get to the second part of what I'm about to say. But here we know that whatever else pornea is, it's a sin against our very humanity. It's sacredness because it is inseparable from the Spirit of God. And then he goes on to describe how this, this body, this person, is related to the body of Christ. It's interesting in that passage, he says this, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Should I therefore take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Now, by prostitute, it doesn't necessarily mean a professional here. In other words, someone that is also committing unlawful sex with you. And he goes, never. Do you hear the emphaticness of this? Never. It's it's grotesque to Paul to think about this. Never. Do you not know that whatever is united to a prostitute becomes one body with her? Shun all pornea. Now see what's going on here? Now, it's interesting, by the way, many will look at that passage and think of it as being the individual body. And that's, that's a possible translation. But earlier he talks about how you, when he speaks of you, plural, now you here is plural, he's, he's talking about the very temple church, the body of Christ. And yet, there again, we have such a low view. I mean, we get, we're so messed up. Some, I, we're so, it's almost exasperating as I sit here and try to do this. Well, another thing we've lost in modern society is this idea of community and this idea that, that there is a sacred, mystical communion between us and God, and that sacred, mystical communion extends to our relationship with us and one another so that when you sin, you not only sin against God, but you sin against one another. That is foreign to us. That's why it says, confess your sins one to another, because it impacts one another. When I see, a, I mean, even practically in a utilitarian sense, when I sin, it impacts you. Maybe tempting you in certain ways. Distrusting one another. Putting fear into a social context. And so I believe here that the proper translation is, don't you know that you, Preston Graham, belong to the body of Christ? That you are the temple? You are, you are part of what makes that temple temple? And so, therefore, you're even sinning against the temple of God? It's a sacredness because the purpose in marriage, then, is to be a witness to this temple. And this temple even gets to the idea of the being in the image of God. Now, I'm really going deep. And we've lost all of this, and so did those ancient false prophets. Because if you go back to Genesis, you realize that Eden is the temple of God. The humanity was a priest of that temple. When it says you are made in the image of God, he's not talking about some kind of a rationalistic capacity or he's talking about some kind of a, even a conscience, although it's related, but, but he's talking about the fact that your vocation, your purpose, your, your very being, your essence is to be this priestly 
image of God. That was the role of a priest, to image God, and you'll sound this to be familiar, on earth as it is in heaven. That's the idea. Paul, in those short little passages in 1 Corinthians, is saying, man, this thing is gross. This thing is an affront to everything that is sacred about our bodies, about our relationship to Jesus Christ and the temple of God. And he goes on. He also relates it to marriage. For there is one institution, which is purpose, by the way, is what? To be the priestly witness of the temple of God that is between God and the people. If there's anything you see through Scripture, is that sexuality, as defined between sex between a man and a woman, is the defining, almost sacramental role play of what it means to be married. For marriage, you see, is not ultimately for self-expression or individual, uh, you know, uh, gratification. And by the way, we're going to go back to that later because we don't even know how to put singleness into this conversation. Well, it's going to come up in a really incredible way. Because, see, the purpose of marriage is to witness, to image, to be an institutional witness in our world of this sacred relationship of Jesus Christ to his church. The church, which is to be in the ascension ministry of Christ, the very temple presence of Christ in our city, in our world. Sex as the ultimate union that assumes physical presence is an essential element of marriage, insofar as you're able. To either intimate, to be, to either intimately unite with someone other than marriage is to abandon your marriage. Or, worse, the institution of marriage itself. It's carefully managed by a covenant of grace. So that the temple is not a oppressive event. So that relations between men and women aren't oppressive. I mean, come on, please tell me you've heard that it's getting very oppressive out there. In order to manage that oppressiveness where people were, were having sex and even getting married for selfish ambitions, which then leads to op- persecu- I mean, uh, oppression, God put in this covenant, this sacred marriage, this covenant, a covenant that points to the very cross of Jesus Christ, where there's an unconditional love, till death do we part, kind of love. And only when sex is done in the safety of that incredibly sacred covenant, a covenant that is fulfilled by Jesus Christ as the sacred head of the temple church, can that institution of sexuality be a flourishing, safe place to be. A lot just happened. Sin against marriage... Sin against the holy Catholic Church, the temple of God. Sin against God and the spirit of God that lives within us. Sin against yourself. For your skin is never casual. Your skin is never casual. 
I mean, you can give me a foot massage. It's not casual. And I like foot massages. Hadn't got one in a long time, by the way, but that's another thing. <laughs> Sorry, Lisa. I had to say that. <laughs> oh, Lord, I shouldn't have said that. I'm, I'm really wrong for saying that. Please forgive me. I hadn't given her one either, so there it goes. Let's make that clear. And so I think I've, we've seen here what Paul is talking about. Cornea was a huge problem. Sin against all these things. If you're young here, it's going to be worse for you than it was for us, and it's worse for us than it was for our parents. We've been in about a 40, 50-year slide here where very subtly and slowly we're more and more including into what is orthodox, that which Holy Scripture would say is unthinkable. And please hear me if you're young. This is not the church taking away fun. This is not the church saying, uh, be less than true to yourself and your passions. I'm going to get to that later. But this is the church saying, be who you really are. And flourish as you really are. And fulfill the purpose that you really have. If you're married, we need to also preserve the sacredness of sex and pornea. Sex and marital intimacy can also be abused in marriage. And so far as we turn our intimacy away from grace into a self-centered works performance kind of, of thing. When I have counseled with some about their problems in marriage and sex, this is usually one of the things that we discover. Why, whether there was a history of, of the unlawful sex that then plays havoc in the future uh, expression of sex. Or whether it's just like all of us who get married, we are married as sinful people. We bring into that our sinful struggles, and it's just an issue of sanctification like so many other things. Now, there's some other things. You can send, you know, sometimes there can be physical realities, but the point being is that there is something very sacred about sex, even in marriage, and it has to be done in a sacred way. In a sacred way that is always grace-faced and grace-driven. Where now we're not getting our cues, let's say, from sex, about sex based on what is happening in our world and on, in Hollywood and, and all of the horrible fantasies that have wreaked havoc upon precious, beautiful marriages. And I could go through them and man, again, I didn't read it, but what is that gray book? Um, Shades of Gray and, and I mean, I see it. I mean, I was thinking about this the other day. I came home last night um, after playing some golf. Boy, it was a beautiful day to play golf. And and I uh, was just kind of sitting there and popping through and came across this little James Bond movie. And knowing I'm preaching this sermon tomorrow, and here I am, 12 years old, walking up to Lenox Square in Buckhead, Atlanta, watching every one of those movies. We used to just sit there and just couldn't wait. Man, we would be, we would be counting the days before a James Bond movie would come. Have you seen a James Bond movie recently? And thought about it from scriptural point of view. I mean, there's not a time in James Bond where it's all driven by seduction. Seduction isn't sex, by the way, lawful. Everything we're going to see in a minute. It's driven by power and selfish expression. And I'm 12 years old 30 years ago. 40 years. I don't know. Where am I? 
And I'm sitting there just eating it up. That's what a real man's like. That's what a real woman's like. That's what real sexuality is like, you know, on an exotic island or on an inner tube in the middle of the sea and all kinds of cool stuff. I mean, how can we do that? But even if we could, is that sacred sex? Don't get me wrong. <laughs> you know, this is not against sex. And it's not against total, outright, vulnerable, exposed sex. And as creative as the marriage itself wants it to be within sacredness and creative. I mean, sacredness and, 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 and uh, self, selfless and giving. And again, adult singles, I've not forgotten you. But I want to come back to you in a minute. Because it actually becomes the climax of the sermon. And so here we have it. And you heard, you, if you were here earlier, you saw a wonderful quote from Tim Keller in his little Gospel in Sex. It's, it's, uh, I used some of that, that essay uh, in his sermon. But here it is. Sex is sacred because of it, is, it is the analogy of the joyous self-giving and pleasure of love within the life of the Trinity. You see what's going on here? The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit live in a relationship of glorious devotion to each other, pouring love and joy into one another continually. Sex then between a man and a woman points to the love between the Father and the Son as well as between the Christ and the believer, and it just keeps going. Now there's a second word, and I'm going to spend little time here unfortunately, because there's so much that needs to be unpacked. But it's this word, arsenikoi. Men who practice homosexuality, or people who practice homosexuality, uh, in the ESV, I think, would be the best translation. It's a significant translation because, thankfully, and I wait note of this because of what I'd like to say, but the sermon doesn't let me say it here. I've talked about this issue before, and and the way we need to handle it so much more graciously, so much more thoughtfully from Scripture. There's so much about the urge of, of even the homosexual person to another that, that we should embrace. The, the desire of same-sex intimacy we should embrace without sex, without marriage. Just let me put that out so I don't, don't you misunderstand what I'm saying. But what's particularly interesting is how the ESV translated it. So the word itself is just indisputable. I mean, it's very clear. It, it, it comes from this word, literally, human or man, and then in laying in bed with someone. I mean, there's no other translation uh, that you could have here. So let's just make that clear. People are asking me more and more, does the Bible really teach against homosexuality? Yes, it does. But listen... <laughs> There was an old translation in NIV that called it, that translated this word, perverts. NIV. That used to be the more progressive interpretation of the Bible. The NRSV calls it sodomites. Because it's the word that was used to describe the sodomites. But it's not the word itself. And those words are not what we should think about in this issue. Perverse Horrible words. We would be sinning against everything I know in the gospel to treat anyone in anyone's sin as somehow special 
or unique or somehow set apart as more gross than others. Sin, 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 if we ever do that. Am I clear? It really grieves me to see that. Because, again, we have lost the understanding of sexuality and how that plays into the meaning of singleness that ought to be celebrated and honored and yet honored in a way that we can put into our institutions more ways for that to happen in our society where they can flourish with the kind of union and intimacy and being taken care of, etc., with one anothering in the context of the church. And you're, you're going to see that in a minute. So either way, the two words together are clearly referencing the seventh commandment and how it is that sexuality is to be expressed. Now, concerning what it is, I have mostly spoken so far about this sin, pornea, as it is outwardly experienced. I can't leave this until I go to the way the scripture will unpack it. Again, in Leviticus, you saw some of it. You'll see it in Deuteronomy. You'll see it in um, Exodus. You'll certainly see it in the Proverbs. And so I'm going to read, I'm going to just summarize for you what the church, at least in this particular document for 350 years, has believed the scriptures teach about the seventh commandment. And this is not new. This is what the church believed. You can find it codified in various other confessions and faith as you go all the way back to the apostles. And you'll see when I read this that you're going to go, wow, have we gotten lax. So the moral law stated in the Ten Commandments is unpacked. And, of course, the first thing that we want to understand is then what are those attitudes and speech or overt behavior which encourage a particular sin that is also sin? I mean, I'm struggling with this because there's some great movies that I don't want to give up. But here it is. What is forbidden in the seventh commandment? He goes and says, uh, they are adultery, of course, fornication, rape, incest, sodomy, and that sodomy is homosexuality, which I hate that word, um, and all unnatural lust. Then it goes on to say this, and this is where I think it's more relevant for now. All unclean imaginations, thoughts, purposes, and affections. Now, we know that from Christ himself when he clarifies that it's not just what you do outwardly, but inwardly. Filthy communications, or listening to filthy communications. Now, I I hate to say it, but Hollywood is a communication. Thereunto, wanton looks, that means seduction. Impudent or light behavior, immodest apparel. Oh, boy. You know, it's, it's, it's both sides, by the way. Not picking on our daughters here. Picking on our sons just as much. The way the pants are worn. What's being... No, it's hard. I know I raised my daughter to affirm her sexuality. Biblically, I, I pray. To affirm her body. And, of course, I would say the same for any of our daughters here. Uh, sexuality is not wrong. And... There's something about it that's part of who we are, rightfully so. But there's a line. Somewhere, there's a line, and it's got to be done carefully. But there's a line at which point what we're, what we're doing is we're entering into our Canaanite world of seduction. 
And so we, you know, what can I say in a short sermon? He goes on to describe lascivious songs, books, pictures, dancing, stage plays, and all other provocations or acts of uncleanness either to provoke or to encourage pornea, sexual uh, sin. I mean, we sometimes think ancient people were sort of, you know, clueless. And drama was big then. Stage, no, they didn't have cinematic pictures, but that was a big deal. And it applied to that too. Then he, you know, the other little law we've learned is that laws which are negative are implicitly positive as well. Now think about how this would change the way we treat one another and the sexes. I mean, basically, it is just a... I could summarize this second summary as it is wrong to objectify sexually anyone. Period. That is to break the body from the spirit in a way or to to corrupt it. To make it no longer a sacred human being whose life is worth. Is not in this detached sacred or this detached sexuality. And so we talk about chastity again, doing, wearing chastity, you know, respecting yourself, he's, he's saying, as a person, with chastity and body, mind, affections, words, behavior, watchfulness over the eyes and all the senses, temperance, keeping of chaste company, modesty and apparel again. Then it talks, of course, about, you know, marriage and sex and only marriage and, 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 and encouraging sex and marriage. So he goes, that, that's the positive. When you are lawfully married, to see sexually is a great gift. Again, Christ says, for from within, out of the heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, pornea, theft, murder, adultery. Your heart has to be protected. But not just against evil thoughts or seductious thoughts, but also against positive thoughts. Your heart should be such as to to ponder and reflect upon the worth of an individual, the beauty of an individual holistically, including the body, by the way. Don't We're not platonic, platonic here, as you can see. We can, we can describe beauty bodily. And it is more or less the eye of the beholder. But that's the positive. But without the seduction. And so I want to stop here and do something that I need to do here. Doggone it. Time is going here, but I'll do it more quickly than I'd like. But listen, just understand that historically, uh, there are, you could summarize in many views, but I would say there's three or four real predominant views of sexuality that I think will help you understand the context of what we've just done here. I mean, first would be sex as a natural appetite. This was an ancient Roman Greek attitude where sex is similar to any other bodily activity such as eating or sleeping, when you felt like doing it, just do it. Just be careful not to overdo it as any other appetite. There it is. I see that today. I mean, that's probably new in the last 15 years or so, in at least my perception of what's going on. But we are moving back to this sex as a natural appetite. It's just, just part of being human. You know, I, I like food. I like sex. That's it. Now, think about what you just heard from Scripture. Really? I just like sex. It's, it's a cool thing. That's casualness at its, at its 
worst. We see this attitude today in the growing trend of just hooking up, what we call casual sex. Um, uh, yet we have seen that it's, it's to deny who we really are. You can't touch the skin without touching the spirit, without touching the Holy Spirit, without touching God. It's this mystical communion thing that individualism is robbed right out of our spirituality that we need to rediscover here. Secondly, now this is kind of the opposite of this, sex is an animalistic passion. I mean that in a negative sense. That's a kind of uh, Hellenist, platonic view of sex where it's the kind of thing you got to do to procreate because, you know, we got to have kids. But other than that, you really should abstain from it most of the time. That was happening as well in Ephesus, we know. You know, so look what we've done. Animalistic or, 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 or natural appetite to this animalistic sign of faith. This is the lower physical animal nature in us that we're supposed to be pushing away from. It's a dark and chaotic nature that you don't want. It's not rational. It's not even spiritual in this view. It's degrading. It's a dirty thing. Again, sexual Platonism. And we know, of course, that's not the Bible's view. Sex says it's meant to be is a beautiful thing. And then third, similar kind of to the sexual Platonism and yet a more individualistic perversion of it in the Christian view, sexual romanticism, as to represent human sexuality as related to individual expressivism and identity formation. That was there, too. That is, the human potential is achieved by liberating yourself from the animalistic, you see. Or, or from the from the anti, uh, well, the animalistic that was anti, again, sex. Liberate yourself from that old church doctrine that made me feel like sex was nasty. Human potential can be achieved with this liberation of sex, where it should express our primal instincts. I read a book. Uh, I think, Katie, you know this book because I've talked to you about this book. But it's a book that really depicts sex at a log in the forest and the dirt and the, and the moss. And it gave this in, indelible impression in my mind. And quite frankly, it appealed to something into me that I thought, oh, I, I don't know how to deal with this. Well, now I know. I, well, I did. But, but I know from Scripture. This kind of sexual go-back-to-primalism movement. What have we learned that sex is sacred because it is the analogy of the joyous, self-giving pleasure of the love of the life of the Trinity and the life of the church and the life as witnessed in marriage? Okay. I'm skipping some things here. Give me a chance to find where I want to go. I think one thing I want to say, and this leads into the, the final point, is ironically, in reaction to what I just said, or part of what I've just talked about, what we do see in, in, in sexuality is the equality, the co-equality of man and woman. There's a lot of myth out there that women are to be passive and men are to be aggressive or, or, or women are to be the seductress and the men are to be the, the seduced. And it can go on and on and on. This is all related to very perverse views. The fact is it's both and and it's all of it is right. What am I saying? Let me read a quote from, from a, a, a Harawas that, that, is, that perfectly summarized what I pretty much preached to you many years ago in the Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon. 
He says, he quotes, he notices how the role of women throughout the Song of Solomon is truly astounding, especially in light of the ancient origins. And again, in the ancient origins, women were really, truly subclass human beings all the way through the New Testament. You have to read the Bible. That's how liberating it was for women. And it is the woman, not the man, who's the dominant voice throughout the poems that make up the song. She is the one who seeks, pursues, initiates. She boldly exclaims her physical attraction. Most English translations, and I can concur to this having done it in the Hebrew, hesitate in this verse. The, the Hebrew is quite erotic, and most translations cannot themselves bring out the obvious meaning. They just can't go there of how erotic it is in this sacred union of sex and marriage. This, again, is a prelude to their lovemaking. There is no shy, shamed, mechanistic movement under the sheets. Rather, the two stand before each other, aroused, feeling no shame, but only joy in each other's sexuality. In this covenant of grace, remember I talked about Hasid and this idea how they would, the ceremony of the marriage night was to be naked and to look at each other's bodies and to, as poetic as they could, walk down the body parts and talk about how beautiful they were. It was not because they were necessarily beautiful in some kind of a magazine-esque picture of what beautifulness is. It was beautiful because they connected everything to the spirit. That's important. And finally, a sacred view of sex rather than uh, despairing singleness actually celebrates it. Now I want you to listen carefully to this because this is, you know, going to Get your mind going here. But Paul wrote in the Corinthians, are you married? Do not look for a wife. As in don't, if you're a new Christian, you get married, your wife's not a Christian, don't get remarried. But if you do marry, that is, you know, in this context, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you of this, what I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. Now, that's a key passage there. What? It kind of sounds like sex marriage is a burden. That's not his point. It's all crafted in that last line, time is short. You see, from now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none. Those who mourn as if they did not. Did you? Let me see that slowly. This is what he says right after that. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they have none. What is he talking about? I have a wife. How do I live like I don't have one? There's something really packed in this. As if they did not, those, it says, and none. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy as if there was not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them, for this world in its present form is passing away. Marriage is a temporal institution. Its purpose is in the temporalness of our life to direct us to that which is not temporal. That is not uh, still uh, progressing towards salvation. Marriage, and why it's called a sacrament even in the Catholic Church, and I think they're about 80% right, but they do fall short of one rule, and I can't make it a sacrament in the true sense. But, but marriage was meant to be a redemptive witness to the coming of the kingdom of God in that sacred union with the Holy Trinity through Jesus Christ by faith alone. 
That's what marriage is. And so here what he says, the context, this very sophisticated view of redemptive history. We're living in a now and not yet two realities overlapping kind of a context. So that yes, the kingdom has come. And, and therefore, there's a sense in which you could say you don't need to be married anymore. Like that kingdom that is eternal. Not even need to be married. It can be a calling not to be married in order to direct the world to the sacred union that is sufficient in Jesus Christ by not being married. Now again, we listen to that and we think of little St. Anne's in monasteries. This is not what Paul necessarily is talking about. To escape from the world and be single. Well, I suppose, well, I don't even know if I believe in monasteries, but, but that's another, they, they did a good thing. I shouldn't have said that. Um, but you need to at least think of it more deeply in the way in which that's a witness and all that, because I do see the beauty of monasteries, and I think God used them greatly. I think we sometimes over-spiritualize them as if it's more spiritual than living in the world in that regard, but that's neither here nor there. What I hear, though, is from now on, you know, this idea that we're living in a now-not-yet world. On the one hand, it means that the social and material concerns of this world still exist. We're aliens, or we're, we're, we're residents. But on the other hand, the gospel brings us an internal peace and a hope in the future that transforms our earthly relationships. See what Paul did? He says money's just not the same thing to us now that we live in the now-not-yet. We know that money is only temporal. It's only going to be as good as it serves to bring people to the temple. Boy, do we need to talk about that. Money he talks about. He talks about, um, what are the other things he mentioned here? Well, you heard him. He says, look, the Christian lives as a resident alien. The Christian therefore knows that that there's this, all the politics of this world, by the way, all the economics of this world, by the way, all even our non-redemptive purposed relationships, by the way, they all have temporal future. And throughout the scripture, there's this now, not yet. Yeah, we got to transact in a worldly way. And yes, there are still these institutions like this Lord's Supper. I don't know that we're going to be practicing the Lord's Supper in, in heaven. Everything we do, well, I suppose we will, but in a different way. But everything we do here is, is a Christian knowing that this world is not the ultimate world is going to be driven by a purposefulness and intentionality as directed to the next world. Enter the single calling. Whether you're single providentially, it wasn't something you intended, and it's not wrong to desire to be married, of course, and, but if you want to get married... The ambition should be because you sense a calling to enter into the redemptive witness of marriage. It's not all those other reasons to get married that we talked about earlier associated with sex. So in God's providence, you're not married. Or perhaps you've intentionally decided, I feel a calling not to be married. Either way, God has called you not to be married, at least now. And here Paul says that is a sacred calling. Because what this person is doing in our midst is reminding us, the rest of us who are, and the rest of the world, that ultimate intimacy, ultimate unity, union with God, ultimate fulfillment comes by our union with Jesus Christ. 
But more than that, and here's where the church acted out what it needed to act out. More than that, they belong to the body of Christ, as we all do. And they, like we all should, are relying more on the body of Christ than anything else in this earth regarding our experiencing the union of Christ. So what did the church do? And in totally, totally anti-countercultural uh, uh, way. There wasn't anybody even thinking like this that we know about in the, New Te- in the New Testament period. What does the church do? It writes something like this and publishes it by the Apostle Paul. The exhortation for some to consider the, 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 the calling of celibacy. And again, that's a calling that can come providentially or an intentional, but you either discover it one way or the other, and that happens to a lot of us in a lot of different things. But they went further. You go read Timothy, and there's a whole section of what you do with the singles and how they are to be, particularly in a society where economies was tied to, to marriage. Women had no economic civil rights in those days. This is audacious. Where Paul says, no, no, no. The church will be different. When someone is called to singleness, especially in the case of a woman who has no rights of, of civil, all those other things, the church must support them and bring them into the life of the church and let them be in the life of the church, this, this person who is, who is certainly serving. And, and he says, no, they're not idle. You go, you go through the, you go through those, those lists if you want to in Timothy and read about singleness and the way in which this is dealt with, particularly widows or, 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 or singles, women, because of the nature of the day. And how he goes through this list and demonstrates basically that they still are married. They're married to Jesus Christ and the, Jesus Christ is the body of Christ on earth now and this now not yet time. Therefore, let them marry the church in so many words. And the church will be her husband. And there's a whole list of to-dos and don'ts that come with that. My, why aren't you married? I mean, you look you 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 look so good. I mean, you, you're such a cool person. Why aren't you married? AKA, why are you sick when you're not supposed to be sick? No more. Or, and I could go through it. We've got to find a way. We have sinned on this, by taking the Canaanites and their view of sex and marriage, self-expression. Do you see how radical this is? I'll stop right here, but I don't know of anything I've said that's more radical. You know, this morning we were talking funny upstairs about something else, and, and we were talking about where where has our culture, or where is our sort of, what what are the, the, the most uh, desperate DIS, what, what is the things that we've fallen furthest away from? when it comes to God's sort of moral clarity. And we were talking, and I ventured to say, and I still think it's so, it's probably number one is authority, our understanding and view of authority. We've covered that a little bit. The other was would probably be our, underview, our understanding of time. But I don't know. Now that I'm preaching this, and I guess I'm filled with the passion of the Spirit, I hope, maybe I'd put this one up top. Because we don't even know how to conceive of singleness the way I'm talking about it. Why? Because... It's either an animalistic passion, it's uh, something we're supposed to express, it's either, you know, something we do for all these other reasons, self-expressivism and, and existentialism and all this other stuff. We don't even know how to think about marriage, and that's the problem. 
Paul is saying here, did you hear it? That maybe you're sinning more by getting married than staying single. If the way you got married was for selfish reasons. And you don't understand the nature of the now and not reality of time. The kingdom has come. We have access, mystically but real access, to Jesus Christ by means of the, of the very means of grace that are operating particularly in a fleshed-out way in the life of the body of Christ, the temple church. It is absolutely legit to discover true intimacy, which means you're not lonely anymore if the church was doing it right. Now, let me just say, I know a lot of lonely people who are married more than probably most anybody would imagine, especially if you're single. When you're single, you think you could never be lonely in marriage. Yes, you can. In fact, it may be even worse because the expectations our society puts on it. Loneliness is a, an element, though, of not fully flourishing in our union with Jesus Christ as it's fleshed out in the body of Christ. We need to think really creative. How do we deal with those who are homosexual orientation? But they have a right to experience the intimacy of male-to-male friendship and the right to express intimacy with Jesus Christ through that male-to-male friendship like it would be with male-to-women. What do we need to be thinking about? What kind of living situations? What kind of economy? What kind of all sorts of things should we be doing here? I hope the session will think about this with me. And if you're single, you're in here. Because sex at the end of the day in marriage between a man and a woman is only penultimate at best. And you also have a penultimate calling at best to embrace the intimacy of Christ and work with your church without bitterness because no one sees it that way. To work with your church to discover ways that we can serve one another. And church, we need marriages, healthy marriages that direct us to the way of getting to heaven, but we need singles to help us re- direct us to the to the away from the idolatry of marriage and the idolatry of family. And there's a lot of idolatry of marriage and family in the Church of Jesus Christ today. We need to think about that. Well, we're talking a lot about intimacy. I got to stop, but I wish I could talk more about this table because this really is. I don't want to use the word, you'll you'll probably misunderstand me, but in the Song of Solomon's kind of way, this is erotic. This is an intimacy, a a deepness that's profound. How the glorified body, I said body, not just spirit, of Christ, is in heaven and is mystically by the Holy Spirit communed in our lives through you and you and you and you and you in my life and each other's lives the body of Christ. You become the flesh of Christ to me. And we come here and Paul says, I want you to remember this in Corinthians. I want you to remember, on the one hand, I hear there's divisions among you. That is a sin against this table because of what I just said. And I'm going to tell you again that you're to flee from all idolatry, like sexual idolatry, because that would be a sin against this table. And there you know the the purpose of this table. Isn't that cool? So let's come to this table now, embracing its fullness as we bring ourselves with our prayers and our giving. Thank you.